July 25, 2021. Summer on the Mount. Week 3. The Carpenter's Apprentice. I am not particularly handy. It's not for lack of trying, and I'm not completely helpless. I've, I've learned how to do quite a few things. I surprise myself once in a while, but I'm not particularly handy. My dad was always very handy. I don't think there was a home improvement project that he ran into that he couldn't solve. And he tried his best to pass that along to my brother and me, but my brother, it clicked with him, and he caught it, and he's an engineer now, and I'm, I do this, and I'm not particularly handy. Uh, now, home ownership, the same way that necessity is the mother of invention, home ownership has forced me to learn some things, and every once in a while, I'm working on something, and I say, hey, I actually, I know how to do this, and it worked, and I built something on my patio this year, and it's still standing, and uh, we'll see when I get home today, but uh, I'm not particularly, it doesn't come, I'm not the sort of neighbor or friend that you call when you're in, in a problem on your house and you need somebody to help you figure it out. That's not me, though it's not for a lack of trying. One of my favorite shows is uh, the Dirty Jobs on the Discovery Channel with Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe is the host of Dirty Jobs, and that phrase, Dirty Jobs, tend to, tends to imply a job that is unsavory or a little dishonest. You know, that phrase, uh, it's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it. But Mike Rowe took a different meaning on it and said, let's actually go out and find jobs where people get dirty, where they get up to their knees in filth, where you have to take a shower after work before you travel home. And so he travels around the country for eight seasons on dirty jobs, traveling around and finding people who have jobs where they just get plain dirty. And he starts every episode saying, my name's Mike Rowe, and this is my job. I explore the country looking for people who aren't afraid to get dirty, hardworking men and women who earn an honest living doing the kinds of job that makes the kind of jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us. In over eight seasons and 169 episodes, he tried on 300 different, over 300 different dirty jobs, and he's been a bat cave scavenger, a snake researcher, a sewage inspector, a hot tar roofer, a worm rancher, an embalmer, ostrich farmer, fish gutter, charcoal maker, casino food recycler, I don't know what that is, I don't know if I want to know, exotic animal keeper, and many, many more, over 300 different dirty jobs. And part of something he did on that show was elevate the trades, to lift up the trades and these jobs that maybe we don't even realize are happening out there every day, and to lift them up and show the, the value and the merit of skilled labor and these jobs that maybe are behind the scenes we don't know about, but they're out there happening every day, and to lift up those people and give them honor and the honor that they're due. Uh, but because of that show, people often think that Mike Rowe is a handyman. And he says, actually, he says the DIY gene must be a recessive one that skips a generation because it sure skipped him. And so one of the recurring themes of this show, because he's trying out a different job every day on this show, often uh, he'll show up someplace and they're showing him what to do and they're just doing what they do every day and they're teaching him how to do it and he'll try to get the lid open or get the lid back on or try to do some other job and the person who's there every day watches him struggle and struggle and struggle and then they just step in and they make it look easy. I, one episode I watched recently, he was counting alligators. I've never counted alligators. I would imagine I'd be pretty timid about counting alligators, like grabbing them, picking them up, and tossing them someplace. And so naturally, he was a little bit reluctant to grab these alligators, and they're juvenile alligators. They're not too big, but it's an alligator. And so he's just kind of reaching in, grabbing them delicately, and dropping them, and the guy who does it every day is just grabbing them, and chucking them, and grabbing them, and chucking them. And, and every episode, there comes that point where the guys who do it every day make it look easy. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because in my Christian life and in yours, there come those points where we think, shouldn't I be making more progress by now? 
There's the gap between the life that I know I ought to live and the life that I'm actually living. And I think, shouldn't by this point, I should, shouldn't I be more loving? Shouldn't I be more patient by now? Shouldn't I pray more? Shouldn't I want to pray more? Shouldn't I read my Bible more? And shouldn't I want to read my Bible more? And yet there are people, we look around and think, they make it look easy. How do they make it look so easy? It seems to be such a daily struggle for me. But for that saint, boy, they just make it look like it's a breeze. How do I get there? How do I attain that kind of life where it feels as easy as it looks for them? And how do I close that gap between who I am and who I think I should be? Well, we're in our third week of the Sermon on the Mount, our Summer on the Mount, looking at the teaching of Jesus that's contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And this week, we're getting into the meat and potatoes of the series. And this, this topic is the topic that Jesus is talking about in this particular segment. This gap between who we are and who we, who we know we should be, and how is it that some people make it look easy? What, is, what does the mature Christian life look like? What is the goal in a few words? And we find this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 17. We're just going to jump right into it. Verse 17, where it says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, my name is Steve Dunmire, teaching pastor here. So glad you're here. I want to welcome all of you here at McKinley, all of you joining us online. So glad you're here with us on a beautiful July day. It's too late. I've already seen you here. It's too late to leave the room, but I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Sunday on this beautiful July day. And as Jesus is here in this passage describing what the, what the ideal Christian life, what, what does the mature Christian life look like? There's something we haven't talked about yet with the Sermon on the Mount that I think is important for us to address right here. And that is that before they knew Jesus as Savior, they knew him as rabbi. We often, because of how important the, the death and resurrection of Jesus are, Good Friday and Easter, and because of how monumental, uh, how um, the monumentous, monumentous, monumentous occasion that Christmas was the birth of Christ, in the incarnation of God, God coming in flesh, because of the peak that is the Christmas story and the, the Good Friday and Easter story, often we focus on those two parts of Jesus' life, his birth, his death and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and we kind of gloss over the middle part. If we pay attention at all to the middle part of Jesus' life, we tend to focus mostly on the miracles because, well, they're miracles, and they tend to draw our attention that way, and so we tend to focus on those. But before they knew him as a miracle worker, before they knew him as Savior, he caught their attention as a rabbi. That he had this ability, this way with words, this ability to teach. That, you know, all the, all the great teachers and authors have this way of teaching that make you say, that's it. That's, I, that's exactly what I believe. I just didn't have the words to say it. Or they have a way of unpacking things that make you say, yes, of course, there it is. I knew, how did I not see that all along? Of course, that's the way it is. And Jesus was that way. That Jesus was this teacher who just had this way of, of expounding things that made people say, wow, how did I not know this before? Yes, that's exactly what I believe. I just didn't have words to say it. And he had this way of making people sit for hours listening to his teaching with rapt attention and just hanging on his every word. They said he teaches with a different kind of authority than the other teachers and leaders of our day. Jesus was an incredibly powerful and established rabbi. 
So much so that to this day, whenever you see a ranking of the most important speeches in history, and there have been, there are thousands of speeches every day, commencement addresses and TED Talks and pregame speeches in locker rooms. Whenever you see the ranking of the most important speeches in history, any list worth its weight and salt always includes the Sermon on the Mount. And I would say the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most important speech that Jesus ever gave. And Jesus is the most important speech. So the most important speech that Jesus ever gave must be the most important speech in history because he was such a good rabbi, because he's such a good teacher and able to draw people in, not just with his sacrifice, not just with his miracles, but with his words. And as a first century rabbi, he had to address the second thing, that before Jesus came, they had the law and the prophets. And often there's this temptation we have as, as 21st century Christians to pit Jesus against the Old Testament, to make it out as though Jesus and the Old Testament are, are at odds with one another. And Jesus right off the bat here says, that is not the case. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, as you would call it. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Anybody who discards these is the least in the kingdom, but the greatest in the kingdom are those who, who fulfill these, who see these being fulfilled in their lives. Uh, so how do we do that? But one more caveat here, that there are three parts of the, the law in the Old Testament. There is the moral law, there's the ritual law, and the ceremonial law. Jesus has fulfilled and done away with the ritual law and the ceremonial law, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, observe the Sabbath, uh, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, don't murder, don't steal, those are still on the table. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish those. Those are still in effect. And the prophets establish those and reaffirm those. So how do we fulfill this? There's an evangelist before the time of Billy Graham named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player turned evangelist. And uh, in fact, he has ties to Buffalo. He helped to establish the Buffalo City Mission here in Buffalo. And before Billy Graham came along, nobody had led as many people to Christ as Billy Sunday. Uh, they've described it that Billy Sunday, this professional baseball player turned uh, preacher, would, would wind up with the gospel and send it slinging over home plate and just draw people to Christ that way. And he had this formula to describe the Christian life. He said that the ideal Christian life means walking into a church service, walking up front, kneeling down, getting saved, walking back out of the church, getting hit by a Mack bus and going straight to heaven. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. Let me say it one more time and this time don't laugh. He said the ideal Christian life is to walk into a service, get saved, walk back out, get hit by a bus and go straight to heaven. Is that it? Is that the best Christianity can do? Is that the ultimate hope we have? I mean, it's simpler that way. No, no chance for backsliding, no chance for sinning, no need for accountability and no need for church and messy relationships, no need to forgive our enemies. But is that the best we can do? Jesus here in this passage is saying absolutely not, that forgiveness and salvation is not the finish line, it's the starting line. So many of us, because of the, the incredible relief it is to have your sins forgiven, to have that weight lifted off your shoulders, it is such a relief to have that burden lifted. It is so freeing. You think, is there anything better than this? Could there be anything better? And Jesus says, actually, yes, there is. This is just the starting point. This is like the front porch of the house. Don't linger too long on the front porch. Come on in. There's a whole house to explore. Come on in. Explore this life. But so many of us settle for the front porch. We settle for standing at the front door. We settle for the starting line, and we don't press on until the finish line. So many of us, because of the, the struggles of the Christian life and because of who we are, we think, well, I like to sin. 
God likes to forgive. This is a wonderful partnership we've got here. Lord, I'm going to give you lots of chances to do this. But Jesus says, no, no this is the, the greatest in the kingdom is not just settling a forgiveness, but fulfilling this in our lives. So Jesus has dismissed, debunked this one myth over here that the best that Christianity has to offer is merely forgiveness. And now he's going to debunk another myth here in verse 20 where he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is now describing the Pharisees. He's naming names. If there was anybody in Jesus' day who looked holy, who looked like they had it together, who made it look easy, it would be the Pharisees. Pharisee literally means one who is separated, as in pulled out from the world, separated from evil and, and worldly desires and worldly things, separated unto themselves. And the Pharisees were people who were working really hard to be holy and had really worked hard to separate themselves from society. But Jesus says, that's not the way we do this. That's not the ideal way. That, that is not what greatness in the kingdom look like, looks like. And over the next 20 verses, you can read this on your own, but uh, over the next 20 verses, he, he contrasts the teaching of the Pharisees to his teaching. And we've got this in chart form here to make it simple. I hope you'll read the whole thing for yourself. But he goes through this and saying, when, when it comes to anger, their rule is just don't murder. I say, don't nurse a grudge. Don't like murder them in your heart. When it comes to sex, their rule was just don't cross the line physically and no adultery. Jesus says, don't cultivate lust. Don't, don't let your mind ruminate on those things. When it comes to marriage, their rule was, was well, if it, the going gets tough, you're welcome to split up. All you'd have to do is sign the paper. Jesus says, no, marriage should be built to last. Except in the cases of infidelity and abuse, marriage is built to last. And then he says, when it comes to honesty, their rule was, hey, sign your oath, get it notarized, and make those oaths as official as possible. Jesus says, how about you just be trustworthy? How about you just let your yes be yes and your no be no? When it comes to revenge, he said their rule was get even. His rule is when they hit you on the one cheek, turn the other one to them. If they want your coat, take your, give them your, your tunic too. If they ask you to go one mile, go a second mile. And when it comes to enemies, their rule was hate your enemies, love your friends. Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And on the surface, this looks like Jesus is even making it harder, but he's talking about sex and murder and lying under oath. It sounds like an episode of Law and Order. <laughs> if his truck broke down, his dog ran away, he'd have a number one country song in his hands. But let me paint you a picture of what, this, what Jesus is really describing here. Years ago, when our kids were, were really young, we went to the Corning Museum of Glass and uh, had a wonderful time at the Corning Museum of Glass where you can see displays like this where they make glass right before your eyes and incredible exhibits and, and different workshops you get to attend. And we had a wonderful time until the time came when we had to go from point A to point B and it took us through the gift shop at the Museum of Glass. We opened up the door, looked inside. We said, nope, <laughs> not going in there. And uh, at that time, our youngest son was two years old. We said, there is no way we're taking a two-year-old to the gift shop at a glass museum. And so we stepped outside. There's got to be another way. Well, they had strategically built the, the museum there that you had to go through the gift shop to get from where we were to where we needed to go. And so I'm, I'm looking around for a ladder. Is there a way we can climb over this thing? And so finally we resolved that we had, to, we had to walk through the gift shop at the glass museum. And so we're standing in the door looking inside, like navigating what the, the cleanest route is, where the widest aisle were, away from the most breakable stuff. And we're figuring out the best way. See so if we go here, take a left there and come around and out the door, then maybe we can make it out there. And so we, we kind of prepared ourselves outside the door and got all the kids ready, hands in pockets, elbows in, tucked in tight, make yourself like a little candlestick. And we're going to walk single file, 
briskly, but not fast. We're going to be careful. We're going to walk through here. And I squatted down. I picked up the two-year-old like this. So I got one arm over his arms and one arm under his legs, keeping it all neat and tidy. So he's you know, not so tight that he's going to cry or anything like that, but tight that he knows he's not going anywhere. And we start our way in. And we're walking way, like we're dismantling a bomb, walking through the gift shop <laughs> at the glass museum. And... And of course, every time we come to an aisle, somebody's like there with a vase, like, hey, look at this. And th- that's the time they choose to wheel through a life-size glass giraffe. And we're just like, oh my goodness, just losing our minds trying to get through the, ge- the gift shop at the glass museum. And we're coming around corners and we're moving nice and slow and navigating through it. And then it happened. We got to the door and we got out of there. You thought I was going to break something, didn't you? Yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But, but by the time we got out, I was exhausted. I just like, time out, I need to take a minute to collect myself, guys. And I wanted to go back to the room to take a nap. The problem was to get back to the room, we needed to go back through the gift shop at the glass museum. So we never did go back. We still haven't checked out of that room eight years later. And that's a picture of what the Pharisees did. That's a picture of the life that the Pharisees were living. They lived life like every day was waking up and walking a two-year-old through the gift shop at the glass museum. And they're just trying their best just to keep it all buttoned up and keep it tight and just get through this day without breaking anything. Just get through this moment without breaking anything. And you can't live that way. That's no way to live. And Jesus says, you can't live. Your, don't think that that is a picture of godliness. Don't think that's a picture of greatness in the kingdom. That's insanity is what that is. You can ratchet up your try hard as, try hard as you can. And eventually all you're going to do is exhaust yourself. So Jesus has debunked this myth that the best that the Christian life has to offer is merely forgiveness. And then on this side, he's debunking the myth that the way to close the gap is just by trying really hard. Just by holding two-year-olds tight and trying your best to get through that. By the way, my family and I were talking between services and my wife reminded me that more risky than the two-year-old in the glass museum was me. And she's absolutely right. (laughs) And on the surface, Jesus, in this chart, when he's contrasting the way the Pharisees teach and the way that that Jesus is teaching, it looks like he's just doing what the Pharisees do. They had this rule, this way of teaching, where they would call it fencing in the Torah. That if it was against the Torah to work on the Sabbath, then they would make sure their pockets were empty on the Sabbath. If something was due at 11 o'clock, they would make sure it was turned in by 10 o'clock. That they would just fence in the Torah. And it looks like Jesus is doing that, but he's doing something entirely different. He's saying, sure you didn't murder anybody, but would you be happy if something bad happened to them? Would you get a little charge of delight? Sure, you didn't outright lie, but did you bend the truth a little bit? Did you twist it a little bit? Sure, you didn't actually cross the line and commit adultery or didn't cross the line physically with sexual sin, but did you want to? And he's getting past the surface and into the heart. And here's why this matters, because he's debunked the myth of Christianity just merely being forgiveness. He's debunked the myth over here of Christianity being all about trying hard. And this leads us to what I think is the most important word in the Sermon on the Mount. There is one word that I think the whole thing hinges on, and if we miss this word, there's still a lot of good stuff we can pull out of the Sermon on the Mount, but it really all hinges on this one word, and it goes back, way back to the beginning, Matthew 5, beginning of verse 1, where it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And that word, disciple, is the word that the New Testament uses over and over and over again to describe the followers of Jesus. The word disciple is used to describe the followers of Jesus 269 times in the New Testament. 269 times the followers of Jesus are called disciples. 
Do you know how many times the word Christian is used to describe followers of Jesus? Three times. So that the New Testament is a book by disciples, about disciples, for disciples. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he is not trying to just create converts. He's not trying to draw us into a transaction. He's not trying to tell us how bad we are just so we can be forgiven. He's not trying to call us to this life where we can try really hard and make it like every day is walking through the gift shop at the glass museum. He's calling us to discipleship, to be a disciple. And a disciple is not a higher level of Christian. A disciple is not a a higher level or an extra layer for those who are really serious about their faith. A disciple is simply a student. A disciple is someone who's learning from Jesus how to live my life the way that he would have me live my life. I like the way Dallas Willard writes about this. He says, I like the word apprentice because it means I'm with Jesus learning to do what he did. And when you look at the first disciples, that's what they were doing. They watched Jesus and listened to him. And then he said, now you do it. He said, a child in third grade learning long division is is the same thing. It's It's a disciple of their teacher learning how to do those things. In fact, you know, it's interesting that before Jesus was a rabbi and before anybody thought to call him a savior, they called him carpenter. And the word used, the Greek word for carpenter in the New Testament is actually the word tecton, which is the word we get our term for technology from, which means he was actually more like a general contractor, uh, working with wood and, and stone and other materials. And he and his father, Joseph, were general contractors who could build you a shed and rehang new bathroom doors and, and renovate your kitchen or whatever you needed them to do. And they came with skill and precision. You know, a, a carpenter like that in the trades, one of the things that Mike Rowe has taught us and has kind of been on a one-man campaign with the trades is to show how important it is to, to be able to have people who can do these trades with great skill and with excellence. See, because I, I can do some stuff around my house. Sure, I can. I pull up my phone with a YouTube video and I can see, hey, this guy without any editing can get this job done in 15 minutes. Three days later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> because there's, I, I can see, I can watch him do it, but he knows what he's doing and I don't. And the trades, we see in the trades this, this ability where their hands know what their minds know too. They, they, like their hands are able to do what they're trying to do. And that's a picture of discipleship. In the same way that Jesus sat in the carpenter shop and went on the job with Joseph and learned how to do these things so that it became kind of automatic. That's the same kind of life we have with Jesus. I'm an apprentice of Jesus in the shop with him, learning from him so that the knowledge can go from here to here and I can live out this life in its fullness. In fact, this is all important because of this last verse in this, in this chapter, verse 48, where it says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And see, the Pharisees hear this and they think, I knew it. I knew we had to be, those with any kind of perfectionist impulse hear this and say, yep, I knew it. God's angry at me unless I'm perfect. So I better just button up the kids to get through the gift shop without breaking anything. And the people who are kind of passive say, well, see, I can't be perfect. So it's a good thing that God likes to forgive because I'm going to give him a lot of practice at that. But no, actually, Jesus is using the terminology of apprenticeship here. He's talking about the way that when, in fact, in the smiths, among the blacksmiths and ironsmiths and, and silversmiths, they had this phrase that when, a, when a, an apprentice had really gotten the hang of it, they would say, the trade has entered him. And that's what Jesus is describing here, this sense where the trade has entered you. When it just, it's connected. You know what you're doing now, and you can see that that's a person. Now that's a carpenter. Now that's a blacksmith. Think about this in terms of like when a child is learning how to ride a bike, right? 
It's a lot of work. You're coordinating hands and pedals and brakes and trying to keep the balance up. And ride, learning to ride a bike is not very fun. You scrape a lot of knees, you scrape a lot of elbows, and you fall down a lot. But then comes the time when freedom comes. And you can just ride and soar through the community, soar through the neighborhood, and riding the bike becomes suddenly not so much work, it becomes play. And that's the kind of word Jesus is using here when he says be perfect. It's, it's a sense of completeness. It's that sense of, uh, of knowing what you're doing, of getting the hang of it. Or to think of it another way, when, when someone's learning how to play an instrument, when they're playing piano or playing guitar, in the beginning, you're playing all these scales and you're having to work so hard at getting the fingerings down and you're worried about the notes and the chords. But then there comes a time with the musician, if they stick with it long enough, where they don't have to think so much about the notes and the scales and the chords. You can just sing the song. That's what Jesus is describing here. That kind of congruence between the life we ought to live, knowing what we ought to do, and being able to do it. Michael Wilkins, who I've learned a lot about this from, said that a lot of times when he talks to church groups, he'll ask them, and I won't ask you to raise hands, but he'll ask them, raise your hand if you can say that you are a Christian. And usually in church groups, a lot of people, most people will raise their hands. Yes, I'm a Christian. And then he'll ask them, how many of you can say that you're a disciple of Jesus? And fewer hands go up. And that's the rub. God's part is the transformation. Our part is to be a disciple. Only God can close that gap. I was talking to one woman this morning after the first service, and she said, you talked about the gap between who I am and, and who I ought to be. To me, there's not a gap, there's a Grand Canyon. Only God can close that gap. I can't do it. You can't do it. Only God can close the gap. That's his job. My job, your job, is to be an apprentice. Is to every day wake up and say, I'm an apprentice of Jesus. I'm learning from him how to live my life. Not to live his life again, not to replicate his life, to live my life in my family, in my workplace, in my community, the way he would. In fact, there's a, a word, a way of describing this that I'm stealing straight from Mike Rowe. When, when Dirty Jobs came to an end, Mike Rowe said that uh, over those 169 episodes and 300 plus jobs that he tried on and eight years of doing the show, he said there was a simple formula. They always told whatever job they were going to, they said, don't do anything special for us. Just show us what you do every day, a normal day at your job place, your workplace. And he said, the cameraman knew we don't do any rehearsal. There's no script. We're just, your job is just to make sure the cameras are rolling. We don't do a second take on anything. Just keep the cameras rolling. So he said, the site, the site their job was just to show us what you do. The cameraman, their job was just to keep the cameras rolling. He said, my job as the host, as Mike Rowe, is to be a perpetual apprentice to show up every day and to see what there is to do today and to be a perpetual apprentice. And I love that phrase. I'm stealing that for us. I'm stealing that for me. That my job, we, we don't graduate out of apprenticeship to Jesus. There are no, we don't graduate into it. We don't graduate out of it. We are perpetual apprentices every day. I'm learning from Jesus how to live my life if he were me and I'm walking with him. I can't close this gap I can't close the gap between who I am and who I know I ought to be in Christ. Only he can do that. But only I can decide today to be a perpetual apprentice of Jesus. So today, here's what I want to do. I hope that at some point in your life, you have given your heart to Jesus. I hope that at some point you have confessed that Jesus is Lord 
and, and received the forgiveness of this, your sins and the great relief that that is. And if you haven't, today is a perfect day to do that. But today, I wanna invite you to take Jesus on as your rabbi, as your teacher, as your carpenter king who says, follow me. His invitation is so simple, just follow me. And to resolve in your heart to see, I'm, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm not, I don't have to be a perfectionist. I don't have to walk through life fearing messing up. There is grace to spare. There is forgiveness to spare. That is not what's at stake now once you're in Christ. Say, I am, an, I am a perpetual apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm learning from him how to do this life and trusting that he will close the gap in ways that I can't. Let's spend some time in prayer. great light of the world. You know our hearts. You've searched us and you know us. You know our comings and our goings. Nothing is hidden from you. And you know our discontentment. We do not do what we want to do. That which we do not want to do, that's what we find ourselves doing. We've tried hard and it's exhausting. We've tried being passive and that's really frustrating. So Jesus, today, I pledge myself to be your perpetual apprentice, to be a disciple of Jesus, to learn from you, to walk with you, to wake up every day watch your hands and to watch your feet and to watch you do it until the trade has entered me until it has gone from being this thing that's outside of me to being something that is in my heart until it just clicks to move me from the burden of trying so hard to the freedom freedom of life in Christ. Lord Jesus, be our rabbi, be our Lord. We will be your disciples. I pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. Amen.